Hi, I'm Hall of Fame sportscaster Leslie Visser. I was just honored as the first woman to win the Sports Emmy Lifetime Achievement, so I've known for decades about challenging the norm. This month, In Conversation with Leslie Visser, we'll take a deeper look into Title IX, the 37 words that changed society. Fifty years ago, on June 23, 1972, the passage of Title IX radically altered sports in this country, ensuring that women would no longer be discriminated against in any federally funded educational program. In the early 1970s, I was on a high school basketball team where only two of us, called Rovers, could cross half court. Yes, only two of the then six players could cross half court. It was thought that too much exertion would damage a young girl's heart. By the mid-70s, I both marched for and wrote about Title IX. Ironically, the word sports does not appear anywhere in the amendment, but the landmark legislation recognized that gender equity in education was a civil right, and it, of course, included sports. This month on In Conversation, we'll hear from some of the beneficiaries, now icons, of Title IX. People like Cheryl Miller, Julie Foudy, Dominique Dawes, Val Ackerman, and Jessica Mendoza. I'm old friends with all of them. I hope you'll join us. She's the commissioner of the Big East, an attorney, and a Hall of Famer. But I remember talking to Val Ackerman back in 1998, the second year of the WNBA, the league she helped conceive and run for eight years as its founding president. In addition to more games, more TV, and more fans, Val was excited to share with me that Mattel was coming out with a WNBA Barbie, complete with movable arms and a hoop. Can't wait to hear more about this. <laughs> Welcome, Val. Thanks for joining me. Hey, Leslie. Great, great, great being with you. Uh, tell me about that. Was that um, kind of a genius marketing? Now, I was at the time. It was at the time. I remember now you brought it all back. WNBA Barbie. Um, I don't remember specifics there, but it sort of was a sign that we had arrived. It was kind of like being on a Wheaties box, as yeah. I remember. Just kind of a sign that we had made the big time. And uh, he, here we were. And, and mostly um, here we were appealing to young girls, which was and I'm sure continues to be uh, part of the uh, desired fan base for the league. Yeah, actually genius marketing to reach out to young girls, young women. Um, I remember David Stern described when he tapped you, uh, a loyal, trusted colleague and fellow attorney, when David Stern charged you with coming up with a plan for the WNBA. Is this correct? I think he told you uh, the hours would be long, the details would be tedious, and the days would be chaotic. <laughs> what made you take on this challenge? That, that sounds right. Words <laughs> <By the laughs> to that effect. Well, a couple, couple things here. First, this was really a group effort. I mean, I was put out front in terms of um, the leadership role and the interface with the writers and, and many others. Others, but I will say the, the beauty of the league was that it was nestled within the sort of the four corners of the NBA league office, and David sort of put everybody on it. If that makes sense, it was it was just sort of it became a priority project, literally for everybody in the office, and so um, that I think was what made the launch so successful. It was the NBA bringing all of its expertise and all of the history of of its sort of you know journey 
And, you know, this, this recognition that, Hey, we made a few mistakes here. Let's not make these mistakes the second time around all that came, came to bear. And, and so I, you know, I was very blessed, frankly, to work with such an incredible group of people. Was it a lot of work? Yes. But I'd been at the league for eight years before that I had a, I had a, you know, sort of a baptism by fire when I started at the league. So I knew darn well what it was like to work there. And David, you know, um, sort of, uh, you know, walked the walk. He worked as hard as anybody else. And so anybody who did anything there after a while, you knew what you had signed up for. And WNBA was, you know, certainly, um, a, you know, a project where where you knew you were going to have to put in the hours. Yeah, to have known you all these years is to know that your life, your career has kind of been a combination of exhausting and exhilarating. <laughs> and I think that probably that project spoke to it. Well, it was more than a project. It changed some part of America. Tell me what your, uh, what did the business plan look like, your proposal? And was it pretty close to what actually happened? It was, Leslie. Uh, you know, the, um, the vision was for, you know, a, a summer league, a summertime league, not in a diminishing way, but in a, um, in a way that would allow the league not to compete against the NBA, college basketball, the NHL, um, all the sports that go, as you know well, um, in the fall and the, in the spring, so that um, the league had the best chance of long-term success. So the summer was that time frame. Back in that, at that time, um, Major League Soccer was, had only been you know, one year, played one year. NBA Summer League, frankly, wasn't the way what it is today. You knew you had baseball to go up against and occasionally summer Olympic games and golf sort of and tennis sort of sprinkled throughout. But it was really sort of clearer, you know, clearer air, cleaner operating environment there. And so and most of all, the TV was more plentiful in the summer months. So I think if the business plan originally hinged on anything, it was about TV availability. Uh, which we figured would bring us um, not only re revenue because it attracts advertisers, but also um, exposure and credibility. And in fact, the league started um, the first season with deals with three national networks, NBC doing the, you know, the network game, ESPN doing the national sports cable game. And then Lifetime, you may remember Lifetime took a position they were later replaced by oxygen and neither is involved now, but that was an attempt to try to get at the women's demographic through these, you know, women oriented networks. And so that was, and they were all primetime windows that we got. So that was really it. It was that it was the season decision. It was the TV driven by TV. And then last but not least, it was leveraging the NBA's infrastructure and playing in the summer meant we could use arenas, staff, um, league office personnel um, to, you know, to make the league what we were calling at that time, the fifth major league sport. That was the aspiration to make it major league in every way. I think the salaries then were about maybe 30 grand and now they're, aren't they close to 150? I mean, what accounts for that change? Well, na natural growth. Um, there, there was always a scale. So there were sort of end of the bench players who were getting, you know, a minimum. And then there were the top of the line players who were getting more. And those salaries that they were getting were supplemented by bonuses. Um, and so what, you know, what you've seen happily, you know, we started modestly, probably to many. That was the appearance. And over the years, happily, the league has grown. There's been more revenue. There's some television money coming in. I, you know, I believe, you know, the sponsored dollars 
ticket sales money has escalated. And just like any pro sports league, those are the those are the reasons player salaries grow because the league is making more money, and um, smart leagues share that in appropriate ways with their with their athletes with their players, and so that's um, that's been the natural growth, I think that you've seen over the years, and and that's been compounded because the league has also um, expanded its season. As best I know, we had a Memorial Day to Labor Day set up early, and now that's kind of expanded, you know, earlier and later. And so that creates some additional revenue opportunities as well for the schools that in turn, you know, the players share, share in that. Yeah. As you know, it's the 50th anniversary. We're all just joyful on the 50th anniversary of title nine. How do you think title nine impacted first the WNBA and then now you're involved in colleges? What, what was the, the mission and the statement of title nine? Well, you're you're right to note um, it was a frankly a transformative law in the way it um, it was it didn't just apply to sports. That's a little bit of a misconception about the law. It applied to um, sort of the host of of services and opportunities that are made available by educational institutions to men and women. But sports, the, the law really became known for sports because it did open up doors at the high school and collegiate level for more girls and women to play. Um, and so, you know, it, it, you know, I feel like I've had a front row seat on, on this law because, you know, personally, maybe the back part of your question, it enabled me to go to a scholarship, get a scholarship to go to college, to play basketball. And, and that would not have happened. I'm sure without this law, Um, my life just kind of flowed from that. I mean, it was, it was college then it became law school and it became working in the business. And here I am now 30, you know, five years later. Um, so that was personal, but also I, I really do think the pro leagues, as we know them today, the team leagues, especially golf and, and tennis were sort of pre title nine, but, um, but got bigger after title nine, but, but it was the team sports, basketball, and then soccer. Now we're seeing the growth of volleyball, softball, softball, um, lacrosse, ice hockey, Th- those team sports really, um, you know, they, they gain traction. When Title IX was passed, not right away. It took years. And in fact, when I went off to college in the fall of 77, things were by no means equitable at UVA. <laughs> the men were here. We were down here. But we were moving. You know, and so now, um, yes, I'm back in college sports in my current role. And, and it, it, it's night and day, Leslie, from when I started out. I mean, it's just there's, you know, there's been some brush fires and and all. And there's still data around there that is not as equitable as it needs to be. And I don't have that data handy, but I think no one can dispute that it's night and day better. And there are more girls playing sports and making act- athletic activity part of their lives in very healthy and, and, um, and far reaching ways. It's much close, much closer to the Greek ideal, the mind body. Tell me your perspective now. Are we clear of this hurdle? I always thought that title nine, that ground gained is not ground secured. Well, I, you know, I, I think the best example of that might be what happened at the NCAA Women's Basketball Tournament last year, where these inequities came to light. And it, it was a sobering reminder, maybe a different way to say what you just said, that you can't take anything for granted. <laughs> That's how I would, I would describe it. And I, I think the silver lining of those, um, you know, those very public mishaps was that people, you know, at least in college sports, have doubled down. They're trying to pay attention now to issues that, you know, 
maybe where, where things weren't quite right, um, certainly as it relates to the athletes and their experience um, and their benefits and, and you know, how championships or, or games work, you know, for them. So I think that's may turn out to be, hopefully uh, would, will turn out to be a positive. Um, and, and, you know, but at the other side of that, I'm, I'm more of an optimist, I think, than that. I, I don't think women's sports is going backwards. I, you know, I, I think it's still going to be a slow go, particularly commercially. You know, you're going to see a um, NBA game look like this and maybe a WNBA look like that with fewer people in the building. I mean, you're going to see an NHL, but not yet a WNHL. <laughs> OK, um, I don't know that there'll ever be a day where we're going to see a women's, you know, softball league funded by major league baseball or a WNFL. And and those aren't Title IX driven. Those are marketplace driven. But don't you think that Title IX created the opportunity for the athletes to be able to go on to professional leagues? One hundred percent. Yeah. And so and I and I often said and will continue to say WNBA would not have been born without what happened, you know, happened at the high school level and then at the collegiate level with this growth, particularly in the early 90s of women's college basketball. You remember that great rivalry between um, UConn and Tennessee and what happened with the women's final four taking off and ESPN getting behind the sport in a huge way that got more people interested and laid the groundwork for the WNBA that together with the Olympics in Atlanta, where the national team came to the fore. They were the title nine games, right? We won in basketball and softball. Soccer. Soccer. Right. Of course. Yeah. Soccer, which then led to their great liftoff in 99. Tell me about you. Did you have a lot of recruiting letters hanging out of your back pocket of your jeans in high school? What was that like? No, not at all. I was sort of more, it was sort of, um, I was sort of marketing myself more than I was getting sort of bombarded. They, there was not the sophistication back then. I know this was um, when I started high school, it was 1973. I mean, it wasn't what it is now. You didn't have parents and, and sort of schools hovering in, in the sort of complex landscape you have now was much more primitive. So I kind of made my interest known to a few schools. I, I had a short list of schools I was even interested in. Uh, I wanted to go, you know, to the South, basically, because I like warm weather. And so I applied, you know, I applied to and got into Duke, Virginia, North Carolina and Wake. How about that for an ACC, you know, quartet? But your high school coach wasn't the great Debbie Ryan. Well, she was my college coach, but she went to my high school. Oh, she went to your high school. She wasn't your high school coach. No, but we were we had we shared that high school. Your younger sister was a classmate of mine. Oh, gotcha. Okay, okay. But she was a great renowned coach. Yeah. And so she was she was her first year in the program when I came on board. She the head coach had stepped down. She stepped up. So we started together at Virginia in the fall of 77. At a time, you know, not long after Virginia had gone co-ed and Virginia was all male until 1970. Who were some of the really good players that you played against then that, you know, people might have heard of? Well, Nancy Lieberman played at Old Dominion. She was a few years ahead of me and she was a, she was a legitimate All-American. You know, we, we played against um, North Carolina State back at that time, Faye and Kay Young. I don't know if that right, name. Right, of course. Remember of the course. twins? course. But there weren't as many good programs. The ACC, as I said, had a top half and a bottom half. We started out on the bottom half. Um, it, but the but the satisfaction was we did get better every year. So my first year there, we were, you know, as bad. 
And then my last year, we got um, we won 22 games. We got nationally ranked at one point in the year. We made it to the I don't know if you remember the old AIAW. That was the of course I do. I'm prior governing body right before the NCA. So we were in the I was in the last year of the AIAW. Didn't you guys go to the NIT or something? There, there was a well, there was a Christmas tournament in oh, yeah, college right. that we won. And then there was a WNIT. Uh, that was in Amarillo, Texas, single site event. So we lugged out to Amarillo. Can't remember if that was my junior or senior year, um, but my se- might have been my junior year because my senior year we ended up in the we made it to the AIAW. But here was the kicker: we had to play Tennessee at their place in the first right. round. It was like a one sixteen <laughs> game. So my last game was Carnage. <laughs> <laughs> And Pat Summit, you know, years later, pulled out the box score. You know, my friend Pat pulled out the box score for that game and embarrassed me at a, at a public speaking event we were doing together. Did you think to yourself um, the opportunities were really limited? I mean, was it going to be France or nowhere or you weren't thinking professionally? Well, when I graduated, I, I had this idea my, in, you know, in college while I was there that I wanted to go to law school. And that was sort of the end game. But I did um, want to keep sort of. I wanted to travel, Frank, most of all, Leslie, when I got out of college, because I never got my semester abroad, you know, basketball, two semester sport. I was built for a semester abroad in many ways, and I didn't get one. So when I graduated from Virginia, uh, I set my sights on playing overseas. Now, at that time, there was a women's pro league. It was the old WBL um, that Nancy Lieberman, I think, and Carol Blaze Jowski and others that was it. It was um, it was a, a league that was perceived to be on shaky ground, to be honest. Oh, it was a ridiculous. Do you remember the New England Gulls coached by Jim Luskatoff? And he offered me a job. I mean, I was a rover in high school. I was before Title IX. There was no college. But he said, do you want, you know, do you want to come play on the team? So I don't know what was going on with those early leagues. Well, not a lot, to be honest. They were well-intended probably, but they weren't built on sound business models. They didn't make any money and they never, and none of them lasted. Right. So um, it was sort of that or to go overseas and mostly because I had this wanderlust and wanted to travel. I, I chose to go overseas. I went to France. I played the better part of a season there. Was it great? Yeah. Tell me about it. It was very interesting. I mean, it was hard. I didn't speak French. It was a real lark um, to go. The people were pretty nice to me. They mostly spoke English, um, but it was a wonderful life experience. I frankly wished I had stayed over there longer, to be honest. But I came back after a year, uh, less than a year, and then I went on to law school, which was the dream, and kind of left the basketball playing you know, part of my life behind me. Do you think now uh, professional basketball would have been your goal? Um, it Maybe it would have been if it was, if I would have tried it, certainly given it a try. I, you know, I, d- I doubt I would have been drafted, would have tried to walk on somewhere if I hadn't made it. Would I have gone overseas? Because a lot of players, as you may know, still do that. In many cases, it's for the money. I did it really for the life experience. And frankly, wish again, I stayed at it longer, but I was eager to move on with my life. Sure. And I did that. Um, but it, I mean, that experience, I mean, the combination of Virginia playing overseas, et cetera, just having sports in my in my world and the people I met and what it made me, it sounds cliche, but it's true. You know, I'm, you know, we're, we're all those of us who play sports, the people we are today because of that experience. I remember once uh, Mike Krzyzewski saying that West Point, they recruit leaders and they graduate leaders. You've been a leader, a captain, everything. 
your entire life. But what do you think makes a leader? You know, it's a, it's well, for one thing, um, leaders come in all shapes and sizes. I'll tell you that. I mean, um, somebody who's running a military unit is a different type of leader <laughs> than someone running a college sports conference or being a, you know, a top, um, you know, brought on on air talent like you've been or running a company or being a senator or, you know, some other job. I mean, I, I think, you know, there are different skills needed depending on the context. But I, I mean, in my experience, the people who are, are good leaders, um, you know, they they're they're good at what they do. First and foremost, they know what they're talking about. They are good communicators. Um, they work tirelessly. I don't know of any leader who just sort of skates along. <laughs> There's a lot of sacrifices that have to be made and hours to, that have to be put in per the, you know, the David Stern comment of earlier. Yeah, people don't realize you got to do the grunt work. And, and that part doesn't really end. There's always, you know, a, an enormous percentage of grunt work. Yeah. And I'll tell you, it's interesting because when you're a leader, you have to, you have to think big picture. You have to be thinking about tomorrow or next week or next year, but at the same time, you have to know when to jump in on the details because, and David was really, I mean, he was maddening about sort of the micromanaging. (laughs) He would often say micromanaging was underrated (laughs) and you have to pay attention because you can, the details, you know, as they often say devil in details, I think you have to be mindful of that sort of yin and yang. And then, um, you know, you have to sort of trust your people. I mean, I've really, you can't do everything. I mean, I, I sort of had to shake my perfectionism and sort of accept that sometimes good is good enough and let your people decide this and hire good people. You hear it all the time so that they can do right. the work. And then, and then last but not least, when they do the job, give them credit. I think expressing gratitude is a skill that everyone has to, you know, we just all have to get better at. You talked about the salaries. They still, some women, uh, either they enjoy playing overseas or it's supplemental money, which leads to the Brittany Griner. How how do you see the whole scenario and what truly can we do except talk about it? Well, I'm, you know, I'm not qualified on what, you know, I I know mostly what I just read. It's a terrible thing. I feel terrible for her. I mean, it's really, it's shocking. It's shocking what happened. Um, I mean, I, I wish she hadn't gone back. Apparently she came home from Russia. She was taking a break and then went back. So I just, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know sort of, you know, that story. Um, but I, I, it sounds like the league um, and her family and, and others are working very, very hard quietly. I think they, I would trust the diplomats here that there's a, a way to handle this and a way not to handle this. And they seem sure that the way to handle this is sort of through the behind the scenes, you right. know, policy. Um, and I, I, I'm not an expert on that. So I can't certainly can't pass on it, but I, um, I felt, you know, I, I, I think the it's WNBA and players are clearly very shaken up by it. And I, it's nice to see the tributes that are being paid to her. And I think I would just say what everybody would say is just, you hope this gets over quickly. And then she's back home, you know, safe and sound with her family and that whatever recovery she have, will have to go through to get through the trauma of this happens. You know, there's a there's a double-edged sword here, a little bit at work because of course you're friends with Marty Dempsey and about maybe three months ago, a bunch of us had dinner. Has she been there? I think she's been in there three months, right, Brittany? It's February. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. 
And so this was a dinner not too long after. And he was saying, you know, it's so complicated because we want her to be constantly in our minds. And yet that can make negotiations more difficult. Well, he would know. I mean, you're referring to the chair of USA Basketball, who I believe was also one time the chair of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So, again, there are people out there who are very knowledgeable about um, these these types of matters. And uh, hopefully I, I, I do hope USA Basketball, given its global connections, FIBA, the International Basketball Federation, which has a tie with Russia, um, you know, the NBA with its global reach. And then, of course, all the connections that all of those groups have with um, politicians and states, you know, states, statesmen can and women can, you know, work their magic and and have this result. You know, you were saying, I mean, you've been uh, helping to drive the bus for USA basketball. That was one of your uh, stops along the way. And I, I always wanted to ask you, I remember a picture of you sitting with President Bush at the 2008 games. And it was just like a couple people sitting there, you know, kind of, I don't know if you were on the bench or the front first row or something, but what did that tell you? I mean, how did that certify women's basketball? I remember it well. It was, we were sitting in the stands in a VIP section of the Wukasong Arena in uh, Beijing, which was the site of the 2008 Olympic basketball competition. It was a brand new building. Um, President Bush, his wife, Laura's brother, Marvin, um, and others uh, came um, on the opening day of the competition, which was a Saturday. And under Olympic basketball format rules, the men and women play, the they start at the beginning of the Olympics and they go all the way to the end. One of the few sports that has to be there the whole time. And they start with the women on day one, the men play day two, the women day three, the men play day four. And so it goes through to the end. And um, so President Bush came and he was he showed up for the women's first game, USA women's first game, which was against the Czech Republic. And then he came for the next day, came to the uh, men's game, USA men's opening game, which I'm sorry, I can't remember who they played. But I, you know, I was at all of this because I was at that time the president of USA Basketball and I was serving on the FIBA Central Board. And um, I have to say it was one of the most memorable experiences I've ever. He was great. It was like we were just sitting there watching the game. Talking ball. (laughs) Talking about, you know, he was telling me about his his meeting with the, you know, Chinese leadership the day before. (laughs) I was talking about women's basketball and, you know, the Olympic team. And I remember at one point there was a wave going around the building and he was really excited. So it was coming around. And I'd be like, I'd be like, okay, I'm doing this with the president of the United States. I was very excited about it. He was in great humor and super friendly and, um, you know, very genuine, to be honest, about his interest in sports, which, of course, warmed my heart. So we had a, we actually had a lot of fun and then he had to leave early. <laughs> I said, he said, I got to go. Is that okay? I'm like, sir, please do your job, do your job. But um, he, he was quite fun to be with. And it was, of course, very memorable to be in that setting at an Olympic Games with the leader of your country. Yeah. You know what I remember about that too? I think, didn't the men's team go to either that game or a couple of the games, which I thought, you know, what a um, stamp of uh, congeniality and support. It was. I mean, that's what one thing I, I did observe um, it, during my time at both the WNBA, WNBA, and USA Basketball. There, there was good collegiality between the men's and the women's teams. I mean, I, I sometimes read things are made out of 
you know, NBA players going to WNBA games, you know, now. And I'm thinking that that happened from the very beginning. I mean, they always came. <laughs> I remember you mentioned Cheryl Miller, Reggie. Reggie was one of our biggest fans, you know, supporting Cheryl. And when the Detroit Shock made it to the finals and we had um, Cheryl Ford on the team, her father was Carl Malone. He came to every game. So we became, you know, friendly with him. And so, and Magic would come to Sparks games in LA. So that collegiality and support, I think, has has really always been there. And on the Olympic team, same. I mean, men would go to the women's games if they could because the practice schedules didn't always mesh and and vice versa. So I think um, that when you see that happening, the camaraderie is, it's it's heartwarming. It's good to see it. Well, along that, you know, sort of that trail there, uh, because I've covered 35 men's final fours. I only once, I mean, I wanted to, I have to say, um, growing up, you know, the idea of being a sports writer, sports caster was to go to the Super Bowl, the final four, the World Series. And I remember the only time I ever got to see the women was the Seattle Tacoma, which I think might have been the only time they were close. But I always used to say, why don't they hold it, hold them together? And wasn't there a time that you were also a proponent of let's see if we could work that out? I still am deep, deeply. So I, I feel very strongly about this, but you know, I'm, I'm not a voter in the way the NCA system is set up with the committees that do the review on these sorts of matters. In fact, the, the report that came at it out after the NCA tournament mishaps last year, actually Remek recommended a combined final four. Oh, I personally really? think it's the way to go. And honestly, Leslie, I lived it this year because I, we had, we at the Big East had teams in both the men's and women's final fours. So we had UConn on the women, Villanova the men, and I went back and forth and it was brutal. But don't you it think it could be like a, brutal. like a grand slam? I always said, it why is Wimbledon? Yeah, what? I think if it would be one plus one is three. I mean, putting yeah. my personal travel story aside here on this, I really do think that combining them could bring together the best of all worlds. Um, you know, it, it could be easily managed, I think, in a city with an arena and a dome. And, and you know, yes, there are some logistical challenges around hotels and convention center space for the coaches and all that sort of thing. But I think it would enhance, right. enhance, you know, um, the college, you know, college basketball. I think it could open women's basketball up to potentially new fans because they're different fan bases. It's totally I think there could be a very um, exciting industry events at both. And then, you know, you wouldn't ask sponsors and network partners and everybody to have to choose because my observation is they're going to choose to go to the men's final four. That's where a lot of the action is. That's where the meetings are. That's where all the social gatherings are for the most part. And I think, you know, women's basketball is missing out because it's not partaking. Well, what's the resistance to it? I'm not quite sure. I'm, I'm not the right one to ask. No, I agree with you because I always missed. I always said to myself, I would have loved to have seen those women's final fours, but I would I candidly would not have given up the men's final four to do it. I think the hesitation, frankly, has been from the women's basketball community who claim they're they're fearful of being overshadowed. Yeah, I don't think that's giving women's basketball the respect it deserves. I don't think women would be overshadowed in a combined final four. That's my that's my view. And I I wish it could get tried. That's my other reservation. I'm I'm, I'm noticing, too, uh, a reluctance to even try it one time, which to me is a mistake. I would try it. If it doesn't work, you go back to a separate event. But if it works, then you know, and you can build an exciting future around, as you put it, a basketball grand slam, if you will. Oh, it'd be great. Um, there are so many questions that I'm just going to say the four words, Big East and NIL. 
and you fill in all the blanks. Uh, well, there are there are two separate topics. I could tell you I could talk all day about the Big East, <laughs> um, and you know where we are, and I'm excited excited and proud about about that because um, I think a lot of people doubted that the Big East, as a basketball centric conference, could remain successful in a football driven world. That's how college revenues are mostly generated in football, but we've defied sort of defied the conventional wisdom around that. So here we are about to enter year 10 of the new Big East, hard to believe. And um, there have been some important successes along the way that I, you know, I'm proud of and I know our schools are proud of. So the March of the Big East, as Dave Gavitt used to say, the March of the Big East will go on. I guess I'll tell you my opinion with the NIL is that, um, and I had this big, big disagreement. I've had it with Bayheim with a lot of people. I think Catholic schools, having gone to one of them, Boston College, I think Catholic schools do not have the kind of money that SEC schools have because many of these Catholic programs are in cities that vie for the entertainment dollar. The alumni are not just interested solely in their school like they are at many of the SEC schools. And I see it as a real problem for recruiting the greatest players. Well, it hasn't proven to be a problem quite yet for our schools. We still have what our folks think is an attractive package. And you're in big markets. You're going to play in front of packed houses. Um, you're going to be on national television. Every single Big East men's basketball game is on national TV. And a lot of our women's games, too. You're going to play in the best, frankly, in my opinion, the best college basketball tournament there is, the Big East tournament at Madison Square Garden. Um, and you're going to be, you know, in a school where you're the big guys on campus because we don't have football. But do you not envision that a kid who's being recruited, uh, you know, here comes legally, here comes Auburn with $800,000 and here comes Creighton with less than less than not as um, a program, but as an alumni fund? Well, we'll we'll see. That's you're asking, frankly, the sixty four thousand dollar questions right right now, which are what impact will the onset of name, image, and likeness opportunities, coupled with the changes in the transfer rule, um, which now allow more freedom of movement by athletes between schools. Uh, the combination of those two factors are, frankly, it's upending, it's upending sports at the highest levels in football and men's basketball, most of all, but in other sports as well, are starting to see the ramifications of these changes. Didn't Villanova not lose any people to the transfer portal? Yeah, they, they did not. And they didn't lose any of their, even with Jay stepping down, didn't lose any of their incoming players either. Oh, and wow. again, this is sort of back to what I was, you know, this value proposition, I think our schools are offering, which is come to our schools. We're going to take care of you. Great education. You're going to travel. You're going to play in front of these adoring fans. You're going to be on national television. You're going to play Madison Square Garden for the tournament. Um, you know, and yeah, you know, there's some NIL opportunities that are, are going to be available to you as well in this sort of new ecosystem of college sports. I, you know, I, 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 I hope, I, I don't have a crystal ball here. I hope that remains a pretty good, again, value proposition for um, these, you know, these these college basketball players who are looking to, you know, keep their keep their competitive juices going here. What I can't tell you what'll happen in two years or five years as some of these changes, you know, kind of sink in and and all this evolves. But I, I think for now, now the reports that we're getting from our schools are pretty good. Frankly, Creighton, 
is going to probably be a top three team. I saw that college basketball season next year. This is a small Catholic school in Omaha, Nebraska. And they're one of the top basketball programs in the country. But NIL is, is a major change. And, um, you know, there's a lot of questions around how it's working, um, the impact on recruiting, the absence of a national standard, which is makes it confusing, especially for the athletes, because it's state law driven right now. And so different states have different ways of managing this, which creates some confusion. Congress was implored last year to try to come up with a national law. They 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 passed. So there's no national standard around it. And I think there there are some questions around um, Recruiting inducements, which are you know forbidden, as well as sort of this notion of paying for playing. It's not supposed to be a payment to play sports. It's supposed to be for other attributes. Yeah, it's um, it all leads to restraint of trade, though. <laughs> it could, and there are legal. There are some legal questions for sure. Uh, just, just finally, I'm I'm so proud of your entire career, really. Which, if you do it, you do it right. And I cannot imagine the joy you must have. Sincerely that you are going into the New Jersey Hall of Fame, or maybe you did. And I read some of the people, Alexander Hamilton from the play. <laughs> exactly. Our, one of our you know, founding fathers. Yes. Yeah. So that was a great honor. And so when I got the call about that, that was, you know, pr- pretty, pretty incredible. We spoke of the founding father, of course, our first secretary of the treasury, Alexander Hamilton did. Um, I, I said this to Andrew Emmer, our producer, right before we went on. I said, I think Washington crossed the Delaware near your hometown. Wow. You you guys are very prepared. That is tr- a true statement. Is that true? <laughs> yes. <laughs> Washington crossed the, crossed the uh, Delaware um, in Washington Crossing, <laughs> Pennsylvania, which is across the Delaware River from Washington Crossing, New Jersey. And Washington Crossing, New Jersey is minutes away from my hometown of Pennington, New Jersey, which is north of Trenton, where Washington surprised the Hessians. Really? No, you've just been great. And you're um, you're always, you know, you're fair, you're candid, you're fun. Like you should uh, you were a good you're you're an authentic role model. You're a good one. Well, Leslie, thank you so much. I'm, I'm so grateful to you for giving me the chance to be on today. And you're one of my sheroes. You should know this. No, no one has blaze trails like you have. So thank you. And that was my conversation with Val Ackerman. If you enjoyed this episode and want to hear more, please give us a five-star rating and leave a review. Subscribe today wherever you stream your podcasts. The executive producer is the great Andrew Emmer. Marissa Rivas is the Director of Sports Podcasting for SiriusXM. And special thanks to Senior Vice President of Sports Programming and Podcasting, Steve Cohen. SiriusXM Podcasts.